I'm Barry Weiss, and this is Honestly. We begin tonight with the stunning collapse in Afghanistan. Afghans are running from the Taliban, now in full control, setting up checkpoints with the very weapons American taxpayers bought for the Afghan army. Today, a story of one American woman's mission. Rahima can do voice memos better than she can do calls. Try to send voice memos to Rahima. To get a single teenage girl trapped inside the now Taliban-ruled Afghanistan, out of the country and into safety. Tens of thousands of Afghans stormed onto the runways, desperate to leave, clinging onto aircraft. Time is Easter. The condition is worse. I'm even the witness of people are dying in front of my eyes. You can do this. You can absolutely do this. Stay strong. I am praying for you. I love you very much. Stay strong. Thank you so much, Ms. Easter. I love you too. It's been a little bit more than a month since Afghanistan fell, but the Taliban has already transformed the country. While jihadists fly Black Hawk helicopters in the sky, on the ground, Afghans are being pulled back into the 7th century. The Ministry of Propagation of Virtue and Prevention of Vice is back, and with it, medieval punishments. Thieves will have their hands cut off. Those found guilty of illegal sexual intercourse will be stoned to death. After Kandahar fell, the Taliban executed a comedian named Nazar Mohammed, who had made fun of them on TikTok. In the meantime, they have captured, whipped, and tortured local journalists throughout the country. Afghan women are being erased, quite literally, as they are forced into burqas once more. Others are being flogged and beaten in the streets. Girls as young as 15 are being forced into marriages with Taliban fighters. And of course, the new interim government in the country is all male. But the most vulnerable people of all are our Afghan allies, those people who believed America and allied forces when we told them that we would make sure never to abandon them. One of them is an Afghan sniper who worked alongside British special forces. He was hunted down last week and executed in front of his family. In cities across the country, as the Taliban goes house to house looking for traitors, Afghans are burning up any evidence that they worked with us, that they associated with us, that they supported us in our mission. Experts say that there are hundreds of thousands of such people, and their chance at freedom relies on Americans who are determined to right what the White House has gotten so horribly wrong. They are a ragtag group, combat veterans, human rights activists, ex-special forces, State Department officials, intelligence agents, members of Congress, nonprofit organizers, and wealthy individuals with the kind of resources necessary to charter planes and helicopters. In time, history books will be written about this 21st century underground railroad and about the people that they have smuggled out of Afghanistan, often in the dead of night. Today, I want to tell you the story of just one of these people. One young girl's escape from Afghanistan and the woman in suburban Illinois who stepped into the vacuum left by the American government. Stay with us. Yeah. 
You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show, where we expose how patent trolls shake down innocent victims using legal loopholes and abuse of the system. Hello, I notice you've been sued for patent infringement. I'd be happy to represent you for a price. Just remember, your defense cost is going to run around $3 million. Wow. The patent we were sued on had, as I recall, 113 claims. And every claim was almost the same. In other words, one claim would say, a computer accessing another computer to unlock software. And the next thing would be, software unlocked by one computer accessing another computer. That was just the same thing over and over 113 times, phrased a little bit differently each time. Since it took us four years and $2 million to overturn one of those sentences, they could put us through this for the rest of our lives. For more with Austin Meyer, including the details of his investigation into patent trolls and why none of us are safe, check out episode 326 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. Okay, we ready? Yes, hi. Hi, Rahima. Hi. So the young Afghan girl at the center of this story is named Rahima. Can I start by asking, how old are you? I'm 15 years old. And for the last few years, she's been a student at a school in Kabul started by the parents of an American woman named Esther Joy King. Esther? Yes. I'm so excited to meet you. Thank you. Esther is a former aid worker turned JAG officer who lived in Afghanistan for a year herself. I took a job working for a United Nations development project to help women get jobs in Afghanistan. Esther's parents had been inspired to start the school in Kabul, the one where Rahima is a student, after visiting Esther there years ago. My mother and father came to visit and they decided, you know what, Afghanistan is a country in need and they started a school in Afghanistan. They've been running that school for over a decade, or at least they did until last winter when Esther's mom got sick. And my mom ended up being diagnosed with cancer in February. By April, Esther's mother had died. And I ended up taking over her classes, her high school classes that she was teaching for these Afghan students. So via Zoom, every night from Illinois, Esther began teaching Afghan students in Kabul remotely. And I developed a close relationship with many of those students. She was impressed with the students, in particular with a group of girls to whom she became especially close and that she continued to tutor and stay in touch with through the summer, including Rahima. Rahima... My understanding is that the night of August 14th, the day before Kabul fell to the Taliban, you were on Skype with your teacher, with Esther. Yes. So I had been on Skype with Rahima the night before, talking about getting her a student visa to bring her to study in the United States. I wanted to come to the United States to continue my high school and start my 10th grade. The two were talking about the plan to get Rahima into the United States to study, which is something they'd been working on for months. But suddenly it had this intense urgency because as the Americans announced withdrawal date neared, the Taliban had been taking over territory after territory and moving their way toward the capital of Kabul, where Rahima and her family lived. The Taliban had canvassed the neighborhoods and put notices on homes, doors, that if that home had women, they needed to report how many women they had because the Taliban was coming and they needed prize brides for their warriors. Taliban wanted to find girls that they are underage and they are single. I was scared of that as well. Mm. I was keep saying to my younger brother, that when Taliban is trying to come and search for me, please tell them that I don't have any sister and there is not any 
teenage girl or anyone. I was I, I was telling my brother that when they came, I would go and hide myself in washing mas- machine and the roof and different place to save my life. And Rahima, what would it mean for a 15-year-old girl that's taken by the Taliban? I was thinking that I will be their slave, nothing else. I will not have my freedom. It was really unbelievable to me. So I went to bed on the 14th, August 14th, thinking, you know what? The Taliban is coming. They're taking over the country. But I have I have some time to help these people get out of the country. I can figure out visas. I can figure out flights. We can maybe get them to Islamabad in Pakistan and then eventually get them to the United States. But I woke up the next morning. Taliban fighters celebrating victory over the force that swept them from power 20 years ago. And the Taliban was already in the streets of Kabul. The Taliban are out in full force. They took over the presidential palace. The Taliban have set up checkpoints across the Afghan capital. And their Islamist rule is already coming back. Carrying U.S. rifles and driving Humvees, just some of the billions of dollars worth of equipment left behind when the Taliban claimed victory and declared Afghanistan a free and sovereign nation. Esther woke up early to the news. I was shell-shocked. And to frantic emails and texts from the teachers and students at her school. I got messages from all the families, and I went into just action mode. She told them to pack up and leave quickly. And then she started to reach out to her contacts in the area for help. I told all the students that I had been working with to go to the airport and to try and get on a plane, at least to get out of the country. Afghans are thronging to Kabul's airport, desperate to get on planes and leave the country at any cost. But as it turns out, so many other Afghans were trying to do the exact same thing. It was a hell when I went to the airport. So they were there during the videos that are now so burned into our brains. They're scaling the airport's walls this morning, rushing in. There's no screening, no security checks, just force of numbers. It was too much crowded. It was too much dense. When they do manage to push aboard planes, they're so crowded, pilots won't take off. And no one agrees to disembark. I saw thousands of people. I saw a little girl, about three or four years old. She wore a beautiful yellow dress. She lost her life. She was not able to breathe. Me and my dad went to check her to give her CPR. It was done. She says she saw one girl who seemed like she'd been trampled to death and others who had died. Three men and one woman that I thought that they were shot because their bloods were running in the street. She's unsure what exactly had happened to them, but there were reports and videos showing the Taliban shooting into the crowd. She was also there to witness what to me was the most haunting and iconic image of the American withdrawal. Afghans managed to push through, willing to cling onto an aircraft as it took off rather than stay in Afghanistan. And people that fall down from the airplane, all those, I was the witness of it. Are you telling me that you actually were there when that plane took off and when the people were falling from the sky? Did you personally witness that? Yes. And it was like, it was so horrible seeing that. It really shocked me. So it's like they would rather die falling from the sky 
than live a life under the Taliban. Yes, that's what I wanted as well. I don't want to be a wife of a Taliban fighter or to not to go to school. I just keep saying to myself and in my mind, it's better to die, not to live in such a situation or circumstances we are going to face. So it would be better to die than to live a life as a slave, as a 15-year-old girl under the Taliban. Yes, that's what I was thinking. And while all of this was happening, Esther, back in Illinois, was trying her best to stay in contact with Rahima and the others. They were all there at the airport observing all that. Hi, Miss Easter. The condition is worse. I'm even the witness of people that are dying in front of my eyes. And they were sending me voice recordings. At Miss Esther, we, I am seeing people die in front of me. And, and it's, it was unbelievable. Rahima says that as she was smashed together with the thousands of other desperate people, she managed to speak with some of the American soldiers stationed outside the airport who were trying to give Afghans water and to keep some semblance of order. I went and talked with the soldiers. They were telling me that you need to be patient. We will help you. We will help everyone that they have their documents, that they can be out. And she says that in the chaos, Taliban fighters showed up and started intimidating her and the others trying to get out of the country. The Taliban was coming again. They were pushing us away. Go away. You don't need to leave. Why you guys are leaving? They were hitting us, shouting on us, shooting. And they were hitting my brother. We faced lots of challenges, lack of food, lack of water, no bathroom at all. And seeing nothing else to do at this point, Rahima and her family left the chaos at the airport and they went back home. And there they regrouped with Esther to try and come up with another plan. Esther, in the meantime, had been communicating with other Americans who were trying to get Afghans out of the country. And she had discovered that for a number of reasons, it was best if her communications with Rahima moved over from Skype and text to WhatsApp. My understanding is at that point, you downloaded WhatsApp to your phone. Is that right? Yes. I didn't use WhatsApp because uh, my mom was using WhatsApp. His pa- her patients were texting, calling, and it was really hurting me that still her patients are thinking that my mom is alive. It turns out that just like Esther, Rahima's mother had also died of cancer this year. So you're saying after your mom passed away, you took her phone over and you took WhatsApp off the phone because her patients were still writing her on the app. Yes. Hmm. But unlike Esther's mother, Rahima's mother was also a victim of the Taliban. She had cancer and she was also targeted by Taliban in her hospital. When you say that, what, what, ex- what exactly happened? They put explosion bomb in her hospital. And she, when she was trying to go out... It exploded and she became serious, injured. So while the group that bombed her mother's hospital made themselves comfortable in the Afghan presidential palace, Rahima was holed up in Kabul, trying to ignore the heartbreaking messages from her mother's former patients while she was recharging her phone at home. And back in East Moline, Illinois. I just started evaluating who do I know that can help save lives in Afghanistan. Esther started trying to assemble as many people as she could gather to help get Rahima and whoever else they could out of Afghanistan. I saw a kind of amazing picture 
of your basically your war room that you set up. You're wearing pink pants. It looks like you're at a folding table. No one looks like they've slept. And it looks like you're all on your laptops, essentially. I want to learn a little bit more from you about when you say we sprang into action. What does that mean? What does that look like? By this point, so many people are hearing that I'm I'm trying to help. So like there's people here in my congressional district who they're like, oh, we had a Afghan visit us on a exchange, a farm exchange knowledge program with the State Department. So he's sending us Facebook messages for his family. Can you help his family? And by this time, just the outreach is increasing and increasing. And so I'm getting more and more names of people that need help. And so I reach out to my church group and uh, just networks that I have. Hey, who can help me? Like, I'm overwhelmed with paperwork. She got volunteers from her church, friends of her parents, neighbors of hers in East Moline. They made spreadsheets with Afghans' names and ages, where they were, and the specific threats that they were facing. So I had a room full of people just literally just doing paperwork. Mm. The Afghans on the ground would text me or they would WhatsApp me pictures of their passports. And I would have someone here putting them into a spreadsheet and, and saying, okay, here's where they're at. Here's their, their passport information. Here's their visa information. Here's their cell phone, their contact information. Here's the gate that they're at and that what they're attempting to do. And they were then trying their best to communicate that information to the State Department, to Esther's contacts in Washington, and to soldiers on the ground in Afghanistan who they hoped could help. Because of my background, my parents working in Afghanistan, in my own time in Afghanistan, I have a whole network of non-government organization connections and people in Kabul. So seeing who do I know that works for an organization that might know someone on the ground. And I'm an officer in the United States Army, so I started working my military networks and just people that I've I've that are in my unit, people that I've worked with across the army saying, hey, who do you know? Do you know anyone on the ground? Do you know anyone that's in Kabul right now? So the day that we see the horrible images of the Afghans falling from the C-17, that's the first time that Rahima's at the airport. What What is the second time that she makes her second attempt to get out of the country? So they were sheltered for about three days before their next attempt. For a few days, Esther had tried to arrange a military car to come pick up Rahima and her family so they wouldn't again have to try and force their way through the enormous crowds that were still gathered in front of the airport. But I realized pretty quickly, you know what, this pathway might not be viable. They're in high demand, obviously. Those special operatives, the people on the ground, they had so many people needing their help that my people weren't at the top of their list. And these girls needed to find a different way. And while trying to come up with a new plan, Esther had gotten some important intel on the situation on the ground. There was a time period where the Kabul airport was completely shut down for 24 hours. And right after that time, like the crowds were less, so it was easier to get to the front of the gates. I was like, you know what? They need to go right now. Esther then made contact with some soldiers at Abbey Gate that had told her that they might have room for a few of her people on a plane. So Rahima and her family went back to the airport, where it turned out that it was only slightly less crowded than before. But this time, the Taliban had set up checkpoints out front, and they were stopping to question everyone who was trying to get into the airport. So what happened on the the U.S. side, our State Department, they were overwhelmed. And so they outsourced, like this is just mind-blowing to me, Barry, they outsourced the document visa checkpoint to the Taliban. 
So our government partnered with and was working with the Taliban to process people and check people's documents and paperwork. That is like literally putting the foxes in charge of the hen house. I mean, it is mind-blowing, right? And while close enough to see Abigail, she got up to a Taliban checkpoint about 200 feet from the front of Abbey Gate. Rahima got stuck behind one of these checkpoints. And they were literally the front of the line in front of the Taliban checkpoint. So they were the next people to be checked when they said, oh, no, it's nighttime. We're shutting the gates. Oh, my God. And right then, the airport was shut down for the night. And so Rahima and her brother decided to sleep right there on the ground. They were right there at the front, in front of the Taliban guards. So they decided, you know what, we're going to be next in line, so we're going to stay overnight. And so Rahima and her brother decided to sleep right there on the ground in the hopes of holding their place in line. The second time you go to the airport with your brother, you made it within 200 feet, 50 meters of Abbey Gate. But the Taliban are guarding that gate. And my understanding is that you spent the night outside in front of Taliban fighters. Tell us about what happened that night. Yes, we extended, we hide ourselves. We faced uh, challenges also right there. We slept on the trush. My brother was there as well, and he was not feeling well. He was like so hopeless, so discouraged that we might not be able to be out of Afghanistan. He's younger than me. And I was keep encouraging him that we must be brave. We must go for our freedom. Mm. Rahima says that eventually she did fall asleep on the trash on the ground. And when she woke up, she realized she'd been robbed. When we when I wake up in the morning, I lost my laptop, most of my precious things that I had in my backpack. Someone was stolen from me. And I didn't have them. I was so disappointed because my in my laptop, I had my mom's memory, her pictures. I'm so sorry. So you're sleeping in the trash. You have no food. Your brother is sick. You've been robbed. And you wake up. And then what do you do next? Uh, there were several other checkpoints of Taliban. We were trying to go and be out of those checkpoints. That morning, while Rahima was once again trying to get past the Taliban and into the airport through Abbey Gate, Esther was told that the flight they were hoping to catch needed to take off immediately, and they couldn't wait any longer. So after nearly 24 hours in this miserable situation, robbed, harassed, exhausted, and no closer to America, she went back home. When was the next attempt that they made to get out of the country? So there was an effort to get a whole big group out, uh, a group of like 200 people together. And so they were all waiting there. So they got home and I immediately instructed Rahima and her family to go join the big group because they were supposed to be extracted. So they went back immediately from the time they got back to their house. And I was in contact with them again because when they got back, they could recharge their phones, et cetera. And I said, go back immediately. So they turned around and went back to the airport to find the big group. After we went back home, the day we I lost everything, everything was stolen. I just went home and my sister told me to go get ready in the same day. 
and leave, go to the airport. As absurd as this sounds, before she could even rest, Rahima was once again headed back to the crowds at the airport. This time she was trying to meet up with another group at a different gate. But when she arrived, she realized the crowd was even bigger than it had been earlier in the day. And Rahima and her father got separated from her cousins and her brother. So her cousins and her brother ended up finding the big group, but then her and her father got separated and they got lost in a totally different direction. Rahima got lost in that crush and she started calling Esther for guidance and for help, but the call kept dropping. I didn't have good internet connection. They ended up getting up to the front of Eastgate, which is a totally different part of the airport. But Mm -hmm. they got right up to the front and talked to the Marines. And I was on the phone with Rahima and she was going to introduce me to the Marine. And I was going to tell the Marine who I was and how I was helping this girl. And if he could please process her into the airport. Right as Rahima was handing the phone to a Marine so that Esther could talk to him. Her phone died. In that very moment. Her phone's battery died. Like, just heartbreaking. And at the airport, without any way to charge it, once again, defeated, she went back home. Over the next few days, Esther and Rahima said they started to worry that they needed more help. And just then, they got some good news. I woke up on the morning of the 24th to news that Mersal, Spujmai, and their whole family of nine did get into the airport. Some of the other students in Rahima's class had gotten on a flight. And like, talk about a joyous experience. And uh, so one of the teachers that had been helping Mersal and Spujmai and their family, her name is Erin. So Erin called me with the great news and she's like, Esther, this group I've been working with, this WhatsApp group, they are extraordinary. They've already extracted, they've helped extract 40 people. Trust them. I'm going to put Rahima and you in this group and we're going to help Rahima next. And the people that had helped her other students now said they wanted to help Rahima. So who's in that group? Tell us about that group. I think it's a group of about eight to 10 people. There's people that worked in the State Department who worked on paperwork. Uh, There's a former Marine. I think there was a former CIA agent. There's former teachers from Afghanistan. So just a group of people, like civilians that just cared and wanted to help. And beyond just wanting to help are like maybe more efficient and capable of operations than the American government. Right, right. And it goes to the incompetence that happened from the White House and the State Department that's still going on to today. But Oh, my God. So we get added to the group, and they're like, Rahima, we are so excited to help you. We're going to get you out. This is going to be wonderful. We want to help your whole family to go ahead and send their documents. And in that moment, uh, while we're in the midst of all this planning, I got a text message with a news article announcing that the Taliban had just said, We are no longer letting Afghans to the airport. We're not letting them go to the airport. I was like heartbroken. And you know what? I I called Rahima immediately and was like, go immediately. No matter what, like get to the airport. We are not letting this fail. Go right now. So Rahima, her two cousins, her brother and her father jumped in a car immediately and they were able to navigate the back roads and they got to the airport and... At this point, we were working at a gate called Abbey Gate Exit. So Abbey Gate is, was one of the primary gates where people were getting in. But Abbey Gate Exit was just like yards down the fence. But it's mm-hmm. where you, we can all imagine like it's where vehicles would exit and that kind of thing. So they were using it as an extraction point. And the Taliban, 
they weren't smart enough to figure this out yet. So they were they didn't have checkpoints at Abbey Gate exit. They just had checkpoints at Abbey Gate. So it was a safer gate for Afghans to go to because the Taliban was not monitoring Abbey Gate exit at this point. The scene at the airport that day looked much like it did in those initial videos from the first day that the Taliban took over Kabul. Thousands of people, men, women, and children, desperate to leave in what they thought was likely their last hope. And they were crushing up against one another. And Rahima is this small 15-year-old girl in those masses. The crowds were getting so rowdy at that point that the crowds pulled her back. And she kept getting close to the entrance at the gate that she was told to be at. But time and again, she was just getting sucked back in by this crowd. Miss Esther, I went to very close to soldiers. They told me, sit here, I'm patient. People start shouting and made noises. That's why they pushed us back. They brought dangerous things in front of us. I was so close to death. But I just keep pushing people. And we are out uh, from the soldiers. I am, should we go to the front exit gate? The voice memos and things that she was sending me at this time was like, Miss Esther, I'm going to die. Like, the crowd is going to crush me. Miss Esther, I am, men are touching me. Like, what, I don't, I cannot do this. Miss Esther, I don't want to go back in, in crowd of people. Please understand. People were touching my body, everything. I don't want to do that. They were telling me that you need to go back to the crowd, pushing people, just go to the right. Love you very much. You can do this. You can absolutely do this. Stay strong. I am praying for you. Stay strong. I'm sending her messages of like, take deep breaths, Rahima. Like we're going to fall back. We're going to regroup. But no matter what, don't leave the airport. Stay there. Do not leave the airport. You're going to be okay. Just keep taking deep breaths. Keep taking deep breaths. You're doing okay. Thank you so much, Miss Easter. I love you too. So she ended up getting pushed too far away from the gate. So we were not able to have anyone get her at that time. With Rahima lost in the crowd, once again, she missed her shot to be plucked out and chaperoned into the airport. So that was the sixth attempt. At this point, Rahima didn't know where she was or how to get to where she was supposed to be, even though members of the WhatsApp group were trying to send her specific instructions and to help her find her bearings. The place that Mr. Matt sent is very hard to find because we don't understand the map very well. By this time, it is getting to be nighttime. Um, one of the guys in the WhatsApp group is like, okay, here's our new plan. There's a Marine who's agreed to do an extraction. And he's willing to even come out into the crowd when with Rahima in a predetermined location by this tower. Mm -hmm. But he can't do it until he finishes his shift at 2 a.m. Oh so we sent Rahima a picture of a tower and said, okay, Rahima, this tower, it's close to the gate you're at. Like, do you see this tower? Okay, go to this tower, hunker down, find a location close to the tower. Find a family. He's going to extract you and your family and this other family with a baby with a pink hat. So mm -hmm. find the family with the baby with the pink hat and get close to them. Be together with that family. And this Marine, when he's done with his shift at 2 a.m., he is going to be able to come and get you. Rahima and her dad looked at the photo of the tower that the WhatsApp group had sent to them and slowly made their way through the crowd again to reach a tower that looked like the one in the photo. I was waited until 2 a.m. It was 7 p.m. I waited until 2 a.m. there. 
then the time arrives. It's, it's 2 a.m. cobble time and we're just waiting and waiting. And Rahima like shine, she was shining her light at the tower and they like, she thought that they were like exchanging signals and she had her little white cardboard hat on and time was just passing and passing and passing and no one was coming. She wasn't seeing any soldiers and people in the group were communicating and they're like, okay, the soldier's there. Like, why don't you see the soldier? What's going on? And come to find out, we figured out she was at the wrong tower. Mm. Unfortunately, I was in the wrong tower because in the airport, they have similar towers. And when they, and when they told you that, when they said you're in the wrong location, how did you feel? I felt really hopeless. My brain was not working at that time as well. And I was not able to concentrate because it was too much crowded. And I was so far away again from soldiers. And again, Miss Esther told me, you need to move. You need to move. You need to be out from this. And as Rahima was essentially refusing to leave this spot, out of fear and exhaustion and just hopelessness, one of the women in the WhatsApp group who was in Omaha, Nebraska, thought of something. One of the women in the group had the idea. Erin is her name. She's like, I have an idea. There's a family in my neighborhood. They're from Afghanistan. They're immigrants. They speak Dari, the language. So she got in her car, drove to her neighbor's house, banged on the door, got them. Got them. Oh my God. And this family, so Erin, the teacher, explained to the family exactly where Rahima needed to go. She put the parents of the family on the phone. Ms. Erin Jensen called me. She found a translator to talk with my dad in Dari. He talked with my dad in Dari, told him that we are in the wrong location. And my dad said, let's make it. Let's move. And again, Rahima and her family in the dark tried desperately to make their way through thousands of people crowded at the airport. And we went inside of the crowd. My younger brother is very tall. He saw the soldiers. He shouted his name and soldiers shouted my name. Rahima says she remembers that she heard the soldiers shout her name and she knew she was close. The problem is that there was this big ditch full of dirty water in front of them. And this ditch was separating Rahima and her family and the rest of the crowd from the Marines and the tower. And I just went inside the river I threw myself in that dirty river and they just came and grabbed me, my dad and my brother as well. Rahima says that the Marines pulled her and her father and her brother out of that dirty ditch and soaking wet, sleepless. And at long last, she was finally inside the airport. It was just a miracle. When they took me, I was so relieved and I called again to group I made it. I made it. They were so happy. Like the WhatsApp group of like, she's with the Marines. Like just the celebration that happened in the WhatsApp group in that moment was extraordinary. But of course, Rahima was not yet out of the country. I waited for about three hours in the airport with the soldiers waiting to call our name. They were checking our documents, everything processing us. And then they took us to the medical centers, checked our COVID-19 test. They had to do visa processing and they weren't going to process them in. They were having trouble processing them in because the student visas were just um, pending. 
And so Aaron got on the phone with a congressperson from Nebraska and got him to talk to the State Department officials right there on the ground and was like, okay, you need to make this work, State Department officials, says a congressman from Nebraska. Like, And that took hours to make them, uh, to get them through visa processing. And then then they went through biometric screening and medical screening and um, then they got into line to get on a plane and there's literally 5,000 people in line in front of them to get on a plane to be taken out of the country. Mm. So they're now just in line waiting for another day. And then once they got on a plane, they got on a plane initially to go to Qatar. However, Qatar was overcrowded. So Qatar was not authorizing any more planes to take off because obviously if you take off, you have to have a place to land. Well, Qatar couldn't take any more planes. So the, they never authorized the plane to take off from the ground in Kabul. So Rahima and her family were sitting on a plane for another 20 hours. So they're just sitting on a military plane, like waiting, waiting, waiting. Mm. And so in that time, like when they were on the plane, I started getting reports like security at the airport is tightening. We don't know what's going to happen. They might just shut down the airport completely. So I'm like, God, like, please let this plane take off. Like, please let Rahima's plane take off because who knows they disembarked from that plane and got put on another plane. And then that plane went to Kuwait. And so they did finally, like the moment Rahima called me and told me that she was on the ground in Kuwait, that's when I finally was like, okay, I can breathe easier. And then just hours later. Breaking news of real importance. U.S. officials confirming that there was an explosion outside the Abbey Gate at Kabul airport. Terrorists bombed Abbey Gate. The Pentagon just moments ago reporting a number of U.S. service members were killed at the Kabul airport. That area, of course, packed with Afghan people desperate to get out of the country. The Pentagon calling this a complex attack just five days before the U.S. deadline to withdraw from Afghanistan. So just so I'm clear on the timing here, Rahima gets on a plane. And within hours of her taking off, there is a terrorist attack at the place where she had just been standing with her family. That's correct. Yes. We'll be back after this. There's so much more to Jewish history than persecution. I know it's sometimes hard to believe that when you talk to Jews, but trust me, there is. And in Jewish History Unpacked, the newest podcast from the people who brought you Unpacking Israeli History, you'll find out about some of the craziest, most amazing, but lesser-known stories that fill the Jewish history books. Given that the Jewish people's history goes back for millennia and spans continents and epochs, there are so many stories you just won't want to miss. You'll end up asking yourself questions that you never thought of, like, was Napoleon actually a hero for the Jews? And why were there so many suicide pacts in the first century? Hosts Yael Steiner and Jonathan Schwab will fill you in on what happened, how it happened, and why all of these ancient stories still matter. You can find Jewish History Unpacked wherever you listen to your podcasts. What was the atmosphere like on the plane of the people getting out? Were people cheering? Were people crying or were people just so exhausted? What was the atmosphere like? They were just saying, we made it. We made it. Mm. We made it. They took us to the Kuwait. Everything was also 
so comfortable there. We had bed, we had food, we had water, we had supplies, we had medical centers, everything. And when they were bringing the food to us, I was thinking it's too much for one person. I wish I was able to share with people who are really hungry in Afghanistan. They don't have anything to eat. They were so hopeless and disappointed and trying to find something. Esther, we talked a lot today about this one particular girl, Rahima, and her family. But my mind, of course, goes to the millions of young Afghan girls and women who are still there. And paint a picture for us. What do you think the next weeks and months will look like for them? Well, I am getting still to this moment, message after message from Afghans, from people on the ground, like people who I helped have shared my numbers with their my number with their cousins, their aunts, their uncles. So I'm getting messages from all kinds of people like, Miss Esther, you helped our cousin. Please help us. Here's our passport. Get us out. We need your help. So I'm continuing to get messages, even from this one family that I got today. It's heartbreaking. Um, the, the father was out of the country when all of this happened. So the family, the mother and the daughters are there by themselves. And oh my God. a female family without a male representative is... I mean, they can't even go out and shop for food under the Taliban at this point. Mm. The picture, I think, Barry, it still remains to be seen. I mean, we know from history how extreme the Taliban is. We know they've already been saying women don't come out in public. We know they've already been removing women from TV, from radio, from all the elements of life that women have been so openly a part of for the last 20 years. As far as the extreme cruelty and horrors that that we know, I think it's my suspicion, Barry, that a lot of that is going to be happening um, in a more underground way rather than very publicly as it has been in the past. Because I do think the Taliban wants public recognition. They want to be part of the world stage and a player uh, internationally, which horror upon horrors, I believe that the Biden administration is going to recognize that government, which to me is just, I mean, we, we, we went from, we don't negotiate to terrorists to come on, welcome to the table terrorists, Mm. just is horrific to me. So I, I do believe a lot of the human rights violations that are to come will happen in a hidden manner that we as the world will remain, um, asleep to potentially in the long term. um, it's easy for us to want to go back to our comfortable existence and just forget, oh, there's a world away. People are suffering. So beyond the mistake of sort of losing the narrative, right, the idea that us having 2,500 troops in Afghanistan constituted an endless war or a forever war, talk to me specifically about the mistakes of this planned August 31st full withdrawal from the country. What were the major mistakes that the U.S. made? Barry, the best analogy that I've heard uh, someone express regarding this whole decision-making process is an analogy of a flood coming to our home. So we've learned a flood is coming, Mm -hmm. and the United States, rather than packing up our car with all of our possessions and evacuating to avoid the flood, 
Instead, what we did is we waited for the flood to arrive and then rode in a rowboat back to our house to pick up all of our stuff that we wanted to take with us. I mean, Barry, the just backwards nature of this decision-making process, I, as a member of the military and as just a common sense thinker, have no idea why the Biden administration and the State Department and the Department of Defense really directed this operation the way they did. It just it, – it's, it's inconceivable to me why we did it this way. So it really is as bad as it looks. Yes, it is as bad as it looks. Good afternoon. I want to speak today to the unfolding situation in Afghanistan. The developments that have taken place in the last week and the steps we're taking to address the rapidly evolving events. My national security team and I have been closely monitoring the situation on the ground in Afghanistan and moving quickly to execute the plans we had put in place to respond to every constituency, including and contingency, including the rapid collapse we're seeing now. Even in light of all that we've seen in Afghanistan, President Joe Biden has continued to say that there was nothing flawed or ill-timed with regard to the American withdrawal from the country. I stand squarely behind my decision. After 20 years, I've learned the hard way that there was never a good time to withdraw U.S. forces. In fact, he's gone further than that. This is the way the mission was designed. It was designed to operate under severe stress and attack. And that's what it did. He has called everything that we've witnessed an extraordinary success. The extraordinary success of this mission was due to the incredible skill, bravery, and selfless courage of the United States military and our diplomats and intelligence professionals. Earlier this week, Secretary of State Tony Blinken testified in front of Congress. And even when he was pressed about the allies that we left behind from Senator Mitt Romney, he continued to toe this line. He said there was really nothing that his State Department or that the White House could have done differently. You knew that there was no way you were going to get all these people out in time. Let me put a final Given the rapid collapse of the Afghan security forces. And, 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 and you said yesterday that you inherited a, a, a date, mm-hmm. uh, but in fact, you didn't inherit the date. Uh, the date was May 1st, and you pushed it to August 31st. Why didn't you push it much later so that we would have been able to process the SIV uh, applicants as well as those who had worked with us that had not yet applied? I, I don't understand why, why a date was actually not inherited and a date was not selected that would be sufficient to actually remove people from the nation in a way that would be in keeping with our moral commitment to honor our citizens, our green card holders, as well as those who've worked with us over the years. Uh, two things, if I may. First, the... Uh we, we, we took some risk uh, in terms of what the Taliban would do or not do after May 1st. Well, it's, the, a, no, it's a risk with other people we took. It's a risk. The, the risk was on people we care for. Yeah, just to be, be clear, if I, let me, if I could, um, the military uh, told us that in order to... While Tony Blinken and Mitt Romney face off on Capitol Hill and Press Secretary Jen Psaki defends the American withdrawal from Afghanistan from the White House, across the city... In a hotel room, Rahima is safe. Rahima, tell me a little bit, if you would, about, I guess, what you're thinking about now. So we're talking and 
you're sitting in a hotel in Washington, D.C., and you are a world away from the entire world you've known until now. I just want to hear from you about what that feels like and also if you're hearing from people like friends of yours or cousins of yours or family of yours back home who are still stuck in Afghanistan and what they're saying to you. They're telling me try to find a way and be our voice that we can also be out of Afghanistan. Please share this with everyone. Please let everyone to help us because my cousins and my, my Musa families, their children, my friends' family studied also in the same school that I was. If everyone, if Taliban figured out about them, their life is so dangerous because AUEF and most of the schools are shut down. They're not letting girls to go to school up to, they're just allowed to study up to sixth grade and they will not have an opportunity to go and achieve their dreams. And I want to help them. I want to be their voice. I'm also very grateful that I made it and I will try my best to help my people. And they also need us all over the world to be strong, to be united, and not let ourselves just a position, our money, our small things, our religion, our nationality, our color of our skin, decide who we are. The only thing is matter, our thoughts, our character, and that's it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you're moved by this episode and you're wondering how you can get involved in helping the allies still in Afghanistan, check out the nonprofit No One Left Behind at noonelft.org. It's an amazing organization run by a U.S. Army captain and his Afghan interpreter, and they are working tirelessly still to get people out of the country. Also check out Afghan Evac at afghanevac.org. I also want to give a huge thank you to Esther Joy King. Rahima isn't the only person that Esther's been involved in saving. She says the number now stands at 51 Afghans. She's also running for Congress in Illinois' 17th district. And finally, thank you to Rahima. On behalf of all Americans, let me just say, welcome. We're so lucky to have you here. We'll be back soon.